Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for tonight. Thank you for time to gather to look at your scriptures and to go beyond Sunday school, uh, to spend some time looking at the history of uh, Israel's kingship and its monarchy. And Lord, as we spend some time looking uh, looking at this history, I pray that uh, that we might learn some things that will help us to understand your scriptures better so that we might be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Hey, so for those of you who may be watching this uh, after we've gotten done recording it, you may hear some voices uh, interrupt and ask questions because we record this live on Wednesday nights at around seven o'clock on Zoom. And uh, so... Uh, so for those of you that are here in the room watching with us, uh, you know, even though we're recording this, feel free to ask questions because, you know, some people maybe may have them as, as we go along and they listen to this afterwards. Um, so we are, uh, we are spending some time here looking at the history of Israel's monarchy. And the reason for this is because on Sundays I am teaching uh, the book of Micah. And he was a prophet who was a contemporary of Isaiah and Amos and a few other guys. And, and so when you get into these, get into the prophets, you really want to be able to try to understand uh, the historical context that they were coming at, uh, you know, at, at the people with and in their, their historical and cultural context. And so uh, understanding what was going on with the kings and the monarchy, pretty important. Last week, in our first episode, we talked about uh, the history of a guy named Samuel and talked a little bit about the judges and, um, and Samuel as the last judge. And so his, the two books named after him, First and Second Samuel, they trace, uh, they trace pretty much the story of Saul and David. Uh, and uh, they get into a little bit of Solomon, the first three kings of Israel. Now, uh, last week, as we looked at Samuel, we left off uh, at this place where that I think is the one of the most significant turning points in the history of the people of God, and that's First Samuel eight, where Israel asks for a king, and and what they what they do there. Remember, if you remember, is that they basically say. Uh, you know, we want a king like everybody else. We want some strong man who will lead us into battle, somebody who, who will lead us out onto the field of war and protect us. We want to look like all the other nations. That really ticks Samuel off. And uh, so he goes to God and God says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Uh, he, you see, God, God's plan, I think God's plan all along was that he would be their king. And, um, and so the people, people reject God as their king. And God says, Samuel, give them a king, but warn them. And he lays out this warning uh, about what the king would be like. Uh, at the end of, uh, at the end of first Samuel chapter eight, he says, uh, Samuel says, uh, so told all the words of the Lord, uh, to the people who are asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. 
and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So it's a strict warning. It's a, it's a stringent warning. And, uh, and yet the people's response, no. They said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So that's where we left off. Uh, not, a, not a great point. Uh, this is, this is the, the turning point in the history of the people of God where things begin to really go sideways. So uh, we get to this, this first king, this guy named Saul. And uh, uh, his story begins here in chapter 9. And, and this, I love this because when you catch this little glimpse of Saul, you can kind of see exactly what's going on here with, with what God's doing um, uh, with, with, this, with this king. Right? So verse, chapter 9, verse 1, there was a Benjamite a man of standing whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorah, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, a, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Saul was a big dude and he was smoking hot. Basically, that's that's what uh, yeah that's that's how they're describing him, right? I mean, this is this guy is you know Tom Selleck, you know, he's tall, handsome. Uh, he is a part of a you know well-established family, a, a a family that everybody knew, a family that had significant standing. Um, but he was also from Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel. So there's this juxtaposition here of the guy who looks like a king, the guy who probably sounded like a king, the guy who is a part of the family that if you were going to, um, you know, if you were going to pick a king from, this is probably the family. It's probably one of the families that were as close to royalty as you got at this point in time. And, uh, and so, you know, we get into this, the story and, and Saul's out looking, he's out looking for some donkeys. Um, they had gotten away. And so Saul and, and his, uh, and his servant are out looking for donkeys when uh, they come to a town. And in this town, uh, the servant says, Hey, there's a seer. We should go see him. Maybe he can help us. Well, the seer was Samuel, and God had already visited Samuel uh, in a vision, uh, right? In, in chapter 9, verse 15, it says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. 
About this time tomorrow, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. So, uh, you know, here's the dude. And God's, God made it very clear. He's coming. He's going to show up at about this time. And you're going to anoint him king. And so, uh, you know, as, as he comes up in verse 17, when Samuel sought, caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. And so you have this whole kind of convoluted story of, of Samuel and Saul talking about these donkeys and, you know, Samuel's like, Hey, come and eat with me. It's like, if this were a movie, it would kind of just be a bad scene. Cause you're like, this is, this is messy. Um, but then what happens is, uh, you know, Samuel sends the servant on ahead uh, to go. And, uh, and he says, hey, but you, Saul, at the end of chapter 9, you stay here for a while so that I may give you a message from God. That sounds good. You know, you got a seer. It's going to give you a message from God. All right. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? I mean, this is how the first king of Israel shows up on the scene. You've got this super old dude uh, who has been, you know, teaching the people, who's been a judge, who's been leading the, the, the people of Israel for his life, who's been serving as a priest, who's been serving as a prophet. He basically ambushes Saul. He doesn't ask Saul. He doesn't say, hey, would you like to be the king? Nope. God's, in, God's picked him. And so Samuel just walks up to him, dumps a whole bunch of olive oil on him and kisses him and says, you're the Lord's anointed. <laughs> I mean, do you, it, like you have, you have to try to picture this. I mean, Saul, uh, I think we learn... He's 30 years old at this point. I mean, Saul is a man in his prime and some old dude just laid a kiss on him and said, you're, you're the Lord's anointed. I mean, this scene is hilarious. Like it should, it should make you laugh a little bit because you would think that, you know, God anointing his King would be this, this amazing moment. Instead, it's some old dude dumping a bunch of oil on the head of some young dude and giving him a big kiss. It's a, uh, it's just a, it's a goofy, it's a goofy scene. Um, and so, so, you know, this is, this is Saul at this moment, Saul has been anointed. He is now, he has been hand selected by God to be the King. And what God has done here is he has given the people a King who looks like a King. He's given the people a king that is modeled after everything you would want a king to be in the ancient world. A guy who's big, a guy who's strong, a guy who's handsome, a guy in a, in a good family. So this is how Saul becomes, becomes king. Now, you know, as we start thinking about this monarchy, uh, one of the things we talked about last week was how uh, part of the reason there wasn't a king yet uh, because there's all these Old Testament prophecies about, about the, the monarchy that would come. 
Uh, and we talked about how the timing may not have been right. And, uh, and yet, you know, here, here we are. And really, when we look back historically, the timing could not have been better. At this point in history, uh, there weren't any real big baddies on the block. Assyria uh, had, was at this point was mired in the midst of their own version of the Dark Ages. They were going backwards. They were not. They were not out there taking over land. They were no. They were no empire. Egypt wasn't a major player. Uh, Babylon hadn't risen yet. They're not a player. Uh, Persia is not a player. Like there's, there are no global players at this point in the story. The Israelites had a problem. They had a problem with a couple of other tribes that, that didn't get um, removed from the land when they took the promised land under Joshua. And then, you know, they got mired in their own difficulties in the time of the judges, but you have this, you have this time here in, in history where, uh, where there's relative peace, where God really is giving the peoples, the people's king, the best shot at doing this right. The best shot at getting this done because they don't have any major threats globally. They really are set up for success when you look back at this historically. So, uh, so Saul is made king and, uh, you know, and Samuel tells him, Hey, what you need to do is you need to go to this, uh, outpost, uh, in Gibeah. And there's, there's a Philistine outpost there. And you're going to see, this is chapter 10, verse five. It says, you're going to meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres and timbrels and pipes and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Verse 9, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's hearts. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Like you get this sense that Saul was just a dude like, you know, he wasn't necessarily the most spiritual guy. He was just a rich, good-looking guy. And yet God transforms his heart and makes him into this king, this king that would lead the people. Um, and, uh, and so you, you come on down here, uh, and, and then in verse 17, uh, so Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mishpah. And they and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. 
Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But then they looked for him, and he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? The Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. Interesting, right? You have to wonder, in the transformation of Saul's heart, did he grow in some sense of humility? Did the weight of the authority that was being dumped on him that he didn't choose, did that, did that like just kind of hit him like a ton of bricks? So much so that he, he's hiding. So they ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. Um, so Samuel explains, you know, all the stuff. And, uh, and so it is, you know, so, so we've, he's identified as the king. He's, he's been anointed. He's now been identified as the king. Uh, and he, he is now in position where, you know, he's taking leadership. He has to, he has to rule and he, he is now the guy, whether he wants to be or not, he, he's leading. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting as we look at this, um, because, you know, Saul, Saul in many ways was a reluctant leader, right? He, he didn't jump at the opportunity. He didn't uh, go out looking for it. He was just looking for some donkeys and found himself to be king. It's, it's crazy. It's a crazy story. And, uh, and so, you know, you have, you have Saul who's hanging out in his hometown of Gibeah, right? Um, and, uh, you know, in chapter 11, we see the establishment really of, of, of Saul's kingship, of Saul's monarchy. And, and what happens is there's, there's uh, an Ammonite named Nahash who besieges Jabesh Gilead. And it says, all the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. Nice guy. Sounds like something out of Game of Thrones or something awful. Um, this is the elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen. And he asked, what is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? When Try to picture this. Here is the newly anointed, the newly identified king of Israel. And what is he doing? He's farming. He's farming. He's tilling his soil. He's a farmer king. This wasn't some guy who immediately like let, you know, pride and power and all this stuff rush to his head. No, this was a guy who just kind of went out and did his thing after that. Until this moment, verse six, when Saul heard their words, 
the spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen. Now, what we're about to read is, is really weird, but there's context to it. So in the context is this, the tribes of Israel um, were very much like uh, the United States before uh, the revolution, right? So before, before the war of independence, where we broke, where the United States, you know, broke away from, uh, from Great Britain, you had, you know, you had the 13 colonies and all 13 colonies kind of did their own thing. They were, they really were kind of their own deal. And in a very real sense, this is how the tribes of Israel were. Yeah, they were all Israelites, but they were not unified. They, they, a lot of them didn't like each other. A lot of them had like boundary issues. Uh, A lot of them, you know, you look back through some of the story and you find out that, yeah, they, they fought with each other. I mean, it just, these, these were, these were 12 very independent communities, 12 very independent, um, you know, tribes. And yet now they have a king and this king, his first job really is needs to be to unify these 12 independent tribes these 12 city-states, basically. He's got to bring them together somehow. Here's a shot. So you have this Ammonite who's besieged Jabesh Gilead. So what what does Saul do? It says he takes a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they came out together as one. Can't don't look over that. They came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah, 30,000, 330,000 men showed up for battle. And uh, so they sent the messengers back, said, hey, uh, you know, and they talked some smack. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we'll surrender to you. You can do whatever, do whatever to us you like. They kind of set them, set them up. They're setting them up. And uh, so it says in verse 11, the next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Saul showed himself to be a great military leader. He showed himself in this moment to be able to unite the tribes. As I was you know, thinking about this, uh, one of my favorite movies is Braveheart. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I had the image of, you know, in my head of uh, that, that scene where, you know, William Wallace has just met with the Lords and he's coming down, he's talking with Robert the Bruce and he looks at Robert the Bruce and he says, you're the rightful King. You can unite the clans if you will just lead them. And it is just, I I get, I, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Like it's just this great moment where this man who could have led them all, defers to the rightful anointed 
one, Robert the Bruce, very much in the same way of Samuel and Saul. And here's Saul now leading them. He's united the people. Verse 12 of chapter 11. Then the people said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over us so that we may put them to death. So now all of a sudden everybody's on board. Because apparently there were some people who were not pro-Saul originally. But now everyone's on board. Everyone's united. We're all in on Saul. Saul's a great guy. Saul said, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. You see, uh, all of a sudden now, they're of one accord. They are, they are united. Saul has brought together the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel now under the leadership and authority of King Saul is now about to step foot onto the world stage over the next three kingships under Saul, David, and Solomon, Israel expands its borders. Israel becomes an empire. Israel becomes one of the most powerful players in the Middle East over these next three kingships. And the, the crown jewel of it all is the building of the temple under Solomon. And so you, you have this, the story is ramping up now. The story of the monarchy is beginning to, to build steam. It's, it's catching energy. There's something happening here. Now, um, in, in chapter 12, we have an aside in the story because now Samuel's like, he's here. You've got your king. You no longer need a judge. You no longer need a judge. So he gives a, a farewell. Uh, he gives us a farewell speech, and uh, and at the end of it, he's like, "Just remember, you guys said you wanted a king, and I told you it was a bad idea." And in verse sixteen, he says, in chapter twelve, Samuel says, "Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes." Is it not the wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain. And you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. You see, when the harvest is here, you don't want it to rain. You want it to stay dry so you can harvest everything and you can bring it in. A, a massive rainstorm, bad news, bad news. And uh, verse 18, then Samuel called on the Lord and the same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. They're united under Saul. The, the king, the kingship is, is rolling. Like it's, it's good. And yet here we are. They're already beginning to recognize the reality. Um, they finally are starting to get it. Verse 20, there's grace. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have indeed done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. Now, pay attention, and we're going to come back to this. 
we are going to come back to these verses uh, as we get further along in the story of the, of the monarchy, uh, because you're going to see how these verses uh, really are a, in a sense, almost a pre-prophecy, a pre-warning to the people that exile will come if you don't, if you don't worship the Lord your God. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Y'all, what a, you can't miss this in the story of the monarchy. We, we, we can't understand what's going on in the prophets. We can't understand what's happening with the exile later on, unless we understand here what, Sa- what Samuel is telling the people, right? He's saying, stay faithful to the Lord. If you stay faithful to the Lord, then all will be well because he'll still be the guy and he's not going to reject you because he chose you, because he loves you. you. You see the grace that is just dripping through all this. This is all gospel. This is all beautiful gospel. There's all truth, right? Yeah, you sinned. Yeah, you blew it. It doesn't matter. God still loves you. God will not reject you. You are his people. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Guys, uh, this is that reminder for us of be careful what we ask for. and Let's, let's not trust in princes and kings. Let's, let's make sure that our trust is only found in the Lord because princes and kings they can very quickly become idols and idols are useless. Now we get into kind of the more traditional part of the story here. Chapter 13 in Samuel, you begin to feel like you're now reading one of the annals of the king. Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. It's a long time. He reigned for a generation. Um, you know, and he, he begins to establish uh, his, his rule and his authority with, you know, uh, 2,000 men. You know, he, he chose 3,000 men from Israel, and, and you kind of get all this stuff. And, um, and here in, uh, in chapter 13, we begin to see the cracks in the armor already. We begin to see that Saul is a king just like everyone else. So uh, you, have, uh, you have Jonathan, who is Saul's son, attacks a, Philip, a Philistine outpost in Geba. And, uh, you know, and so the, the Philistines, you know, get upset uh, and they, they talk smack, right? I let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. And you get all these, um, you know, verse six, the Israelites saw their situation was critical. You know, things were, things were, were, were beginning to go, were beginning to go bad. 
Saul remained, uh, remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. So now you have, now yet Saul's guys that are, they're running, you know, they're deserting. Um, and, uh, and Samuel hasn't exactly shown up at the time that the Saul thought he was going to show up when Samuel had said, Hey, wait seven days. So what does Saul do? Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Verse nine. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What has Saul done? Saul has usurped the role of the priest. Saul is not a priest. Saul is not a prophet. Saul is the king. The responsibility of the king was, was to worship, but not to lead the worship. That is only what a priest can do. Saul, Samuel, in verse 11, what have you done? Saul replied, I saw, when I saw that the men were scattering and you did not come at the set time that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gogol and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin. And Saul continued, counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. And we, we kind of go through the rest here in these next couple of chapters and, and they win. They win. Um, even though Saul blew it, even though now already at the beginning of his kingship, he's already been rejected. <laughs> it's already a, you didn't obey. You didn't do what you're supposed to do. So you're done. You're the last king of your line. The first and last. Jonathan won't take the throne. Your, your throne will not endure, Saul. God's picking somebody else, a man after his own heart. Saul looked the part. Saul acted the part. But Saul didn't have the heart. There was something, something that was about Saul that just didn't quite fit. And so now here we have, and you know, we see we see uh, Jonathan and his whole story, you know, in, in verses 14 and 15. Um, and then about 17 years later, uh, or about 20 years later, sorry, we get, we get the ultimate uh, rejection of God, uh, of, of Saul by, by God. Some, some scholars think that uh, the first rejection was a warning was a, Hey, do this again. We're gonna have problems. Um, and they think that because you have this, this second story and, uh, and it just, and it just gets, it just gets bad. Um, and uh, so in chapter 15, it says, uh, you know, we're down here uh, in uh, we're chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'll punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when, when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. 
Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. I mean, this is a total destruction. And, um, you know, uh, and so what does Saul do? Well, Saul doesn't do what he is supposed to do. In verse 7, it says, Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. Are you beginning to see the problem? Not to honor God. Saul has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, Lord, bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. I did it. Oh, aren't I great? Right? Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle I hear? Busts him. And it's over. It's over. Um, you have... In verse 22, we get to the heart of the matter. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And it's at this point uh, that... Uh, that the spirit of God leaves Saul. Why? Because his heart wasn't with the Lord's. The king that the people wanted, the king that looked like all the other nations, the king who was handsome and was a part of the right family and was a head taller than all the people, his heart wasn't right. What God wanted was obedience. What God wanted was one who would, who would follow him, one who would love him. This is the kind of king that God wanted. And this was not the kind of king that Saul was. This, this is the kind of king that the people wanted, or they thought they wanted. And so the monarchy, Israel's monarchy, starts off on a pretty rough footing with a king who's not after God's own heart, with a king who goes and sets up monuments in his own honor, with a king who thinks that he can take the place of the priest, with a king who thinks that he can earn God's favor uh, by burning a few uh, fatted calves and some bulls and some different things. And he totally doesn't get it. This, this is the foundation of the monarchy of Israel. No wonder when your foundation is broken, it's very difficult. It is very difficult to build something sturdy, to build something lasting, 
because the foundation is already cracked and broken. And this is how the monarchy gets started. This, this is the first king. He was imperfect, um, to say the least. But uh, this, is, this is where we get started. Now, the next king is about to be anointed. Saul is going to reign for another 20-something years uh, before David officially, you know, before David takes the throne. But we're going to learn something about God in the next in our next week, when we look at the, the, the reign of David, um, we're going to learn that God, God does things a little bit differently. Now, a couple of other notes about, about Saul. One, he did something very important. He united the tribes. Two, uh, he was not much of a policy guy. He didn't institute taxes. He didn't, uh, he didn't, you know, you know, force people to, to come, and uh, he, like, he didn't put a draft in to have a standing army or anything along those lines. Uh, he also, in many ways, was, um, you know, he was pretty simple. He lived in his own hometown. Uh, the excavations of the area uh, find that Saul's, uh, Saul's palace, his, his, his castle was probably more fortress than, than palace. It was uh, not... It was not the place of a guy who was living uh, high on the hog or in the lap of luxury. It was a, it was the kind of fortress of someone who was who knew that they were uh, going to be at war and who were going to be fighting. Uh, that so Saul, Saul was a, uh, in some ways he was very simple. He his reign was inexpensive and he didn't push through a whole lot of changes, other than uniting the clans. Um, now, under David and Solomon, things begin to change. And they begin to change because we go from a local monarchy, almost like a, you know, a fiefdom or something in the, you know, with, with, a, with a vassal lord. Uh, that's kind of what Saul in some ways sort of was. But under David and Solomon... Israel becomes a full-on legit empire and it falls into all the trappings. And we're going to see that over the next couple of weeks. So, uh, so next week we are going to look a little bit about what uh, we're probably going to spend uh, two weeks on uh, David. Uh, next week really will be Saul and David. We're going to kind of look what happens when you have two anointed Kings coexisting. One who's still on the throne and one who hasn't gotten to the throne. Uh, so we'll catch a little David's story uh, next week, but, but focusing next week, mostly on the interaction between two anointed kings existing at the same time. And, uh, and then we'll look more thoroughly at David's kingdom uh, in two weeks. And then three weeks from now, we will be looking at the story of Solomon. And uh, then things get really sideways as the, as Israel's monarchy does this, they split into two, uh, a Northern kingdom and a Southern kingdom. So that's where we're headed. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for hanging in and listening and being a part of this. Uh, and uh, yeah, I look forward to look forward to next week. Yeah.